0: Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews, and I am joined today by Herman Lopez, a senior correspondent at Vox. Hi, excited to talk about one of the dumbest parts of American government. And longtime Weed's host, Darland, a reporter at ProPublica.
2: Hi, I'm excited to talk about the Canadian bread cartel.
1: <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling and the Canadian bread cartel. But first, the debt ceiling. So in case you haven't been following the story uh, over the past month or so, uh, the U.S. is about to hit the debt ceiling, our legal limit on how much debt uh, the U.S. government can have outstanding on October 18th. So it seems like it might be easy for Democrats to raise it. They control the House and the Senate and the presidency, but it's proving rather difficult. So under the current budget, Democrats can't pass an increase to the debt ceiling with 50 votes, which is all they have. Uh, And so Senate Republicans were able to block an effort to increase the debt ceiling on Monday.
3: I wanna make sure everyone understands exactly what has happened here on the Senate floor. The Republican Party has now become the party of default, the party that says America doesn't pay its debts.
1: And the three of us here talking are are old, and <laughs> we have been through a few debt ceiling fights in our day. Um, but
2: are we old or are debt ceiling fights just distressingly common?
1: No, we're old. <laughs> they're also very common in our 20s specifically. so some <laughs> some backstory for for folks just tuning in now. Congress has been fighting over the debt ceiling for decades and decades, and there have always been people who voted against raising it. But until the Obama administration, those votes were mostly kind of cheap talk. They were ways to say that you were against the debt, but everyone knew that the increase in the debt ceiling would pass anyway. And then things sort of changed in 2011. John Boehner and his new Republican majority in the House held the debt ceiling hostage to try to get some concessions from the Obama administration. Let me be as clear as I can be. Without significant spending cuts and changes in the way we spend the American people's money, there will be no increase in the debt limit. And it worked. Two days before we were set to hit the debt ceiling, Obama and Boehner agreed to $2.1 trillion in spending cuts as part of a debt ceiling deal. And ever since then, we've had these kinds of high-stakes showdowns where either Congress and the president have to make a deal—
3: or the debt ceiling is hit and everything goes to hell this is a generally very ridiculous part of the american government like this is something that if it sounds like it's stupid to you it's because it kind of is like dylan was saying this is a potentially a huge threat to the global economy the the u.s defaulting on its obligations here would obviously not be good for the markets but the other thing here is that the U.S. is the only other developed country besides Denmark, as far as we can tell, to have a debt ceiling. And even the Danes, they do not let themselves get anywhere close to their debt ceiling. They they raise it way, way before they're at the point of this, the current situation we're in, where we're, we're talking about less than a month before we're at that limit. The Denmark just does not let itself get anywhere close to that limit. And the reason I think most countries do not have something like this is because if Congress wants to limit spending, it already does that. It does that with, like, setting budgets every year.
2: Right, like, Congress is literally in charge of determining how much money is being spent by the federal government.
3: Right, so it is—this is just super redundant in a way that is extremely dangerous. And there's a history to why we ended up here, but it is just to pull back and say— This is not how most governments work. This is not how the U.S. government has to work. But it does create these situations where we're suffering through, like, another potential crisis just because of the structure of our government.
2: I want to do a little bit of, like, basic kind of distinction here because I, a normie, generally have the understanding that, like, hitting the debt ceiling is bad because people who are smarter than I am say it is bad. And I think it's worth pointing out that, like… The prospect of the U.S. defaulting on its debts is like sounds so huge that it's kind of hard to wrap your head around what that means, and so it might help to think about it as like a government shutdown with an enormous, like, disastrous hangover, like the long COVID version of a government shutdown. Because not only do you have the immediate costs of, you know, the U.S. like is hitting the equivalent of its data limit, and like it can't, you know. Like, it can't send emails anymore. It can't, like, do the basic functions of government in terms of, like, getting Social Security checks to people, that kind of thing. But if it results in a downgrading of the U.S.'s credit score, which, like, even the threat of hitting the debt ceiling did in 2011, it raises the cost of the U.S. borrowing going forward, which means more debt and more opportunities to hit the debt ceiling.
1: Yeah, it's really tricky to to write about what happens when we hit the debt ceiling because we have literally no idea. I was, I was talking about this with, uh, with Jason Furman, who's an, an economist at Harvard, who was uh, sort of all eight years of the Obama administration, was a senior economist there, and he referred to it as Knightian uncertainty, which is a, a technical economics term for something that is so uncertain that we have no way of modeling the probabilities of it. <laughs>
2: it's an unknown unknown
1: it's an unknown unknown as don rumsfeld would say
3: as we know there are known knowns there are things we know we know we also know there are known unknowns that is to say we know there are some things we do not know but there are also unknown unknowns the ones we don't know we don't know and so
1: that's part of why i'm skeptical of mark zandy at moody's who always has has estimates of the cost of everything had some report about how this would cost the US economy about $6 trillion. And like maybe, but I think more important than like the specific point estimates, which I think are impossible to do, really, it's helpful to think about what procedurally would happen if we hit it. And so assuming that Biden doesn't do anything to get rid of the debt ceiling, which is a topic we should come back to, Furman was explaining to me that Under the Obama administration, they assumed you would go into something called prioritization. And so under prioritization, the government only spends what tax revenue can finance. And since we have a large budget deficit and what tax revenue can finance does not cover everything, you have to prioritize between items on the federal budget. And so first priority is is paying our debts. They're trying to minimize that increase in borrowing costs that the Dara was talking about. There will still be some, but they're trying to signal to to everyone that the U.S. government pays its debts. I think Social Security and and maybe military salaries come after that. But you pretty quickly run out of stuff like pretty quickly. The FDA would not have money to be running drug trials in the middle of a pandemic. Pretty soon the FBI would not have money pretty soon you wouldn't have funding for Medicare or the federal portion of Medicaid or any of these other, like, huge programs people rely on. And just as, like, we pass stimulus bills when the economy is suffering and needs sort of a boost from the government, this would be like if, if we were to breach the debt ceiling for a year, which is extreme and probably won't happen. But for the sake of argument, that's a one-year, several-trillion-dollar crash in government
3: spending and it's it's hard to imagine how that doesn't cause a massive recession. One thing worth emphasizing here is this is relatively new phenomenon. The reason it's an unknown unknown is because until around the Obama administration it really wasn't this high stakes political battle. Every single time we had to raise the debt ceiling, I actually recommend the Congressional Research Service is a good report from this from around 2015. And it walks through the history of the debt ceiling in a very easy to understand manner. But basically, this this just goes back to Congress's control of the federal purse. For much of American history, the debt usually went down outside of major wars. That started to change since the uh, 70s and 80s, particularly with Reagan's tax cuts. Essentially, when you combine higher deficits, the political realignment of the parties, Republicans and Democrats getting more polarized, more often you have these battles where the debt ceiling has to go up, and now the parties are in stark opposition to each other and fighting, and they turn it into a political battle. It's not that the debt ceiling is new. It's been around for, for literally since the country began running debts. It is just, it, it functioned differently, and it's changed over time. But the big change here is the US is now running deficits and the parties are really, really polarized. So now every time this comes up, it causes massive problems.
2: Well, the other thing about the history that it's worth emphasizing is that this is something of a like, oh my gosh, the other example I was going to give here is not going to be helpful for anyone younger than we are. But like, <laughs> if you don't remember the history of don't ask, don't tell, you know, by the time it was ended by Obama in 2010 became a you know had had become like the alternative was allowing lgbt service members to serve openly in the military and like it seemed you know homophobic and restrictive at that point but like the status quo it was replacing when when it was imposed by the clinton administration in the 90s was that it was you know, was that LGBT service members were not allowed to serve at all. And so would be
1: actively investigated in, in some cases.
2: Exactly. And so Don't Ask, Don't Tell was at the time a way to allow this thing to happen that like the powers that be believed should happen without causing like massive political pain to anybody. Similarly, the debt ceiling was instituted as an alternative to having to go to Congress to approve any debt increase whatsoever. It was like, okay, instead of saying we are going to have to raise X amount of money, but we have to go to Congress to approve it first, it was saying Congress is going to say, as long as you're staying under this number, you don't need to come to us for approval every time you want to, you know, issue some government securities.
3: Yeah. If we were actually in the previous situation, is talking about these flights would even be happening even more often now because the treasury would be coming like, every time it needs to, like, sell off some treasuries or whatever to to raise money for federal obligations, like, that that would be happening way more frequently. So, I guess it's it's one way of saying it could be worse, although it's already pretty bad.
2: Well, on the other hand, one of the things we know about Congress is that when things get easier, they are more likely to do them. <laughs> so, like it's not a coincidence that the reason that they created the debt ceiling structure was because there was a lot of wartime spending, you know, because as you mentioned, Herman, that's when the U.S. tended to run up debt. But that, like once that was in place, it became a lot easier to run up debt in peacetime, politically speaking. Similarly, you know, so many of the spending cuts of the early 2010s were predicated on uh, present Congress deferring hard decisions to future Congress on what exactly was going to get cut, and then future Congress running up into its own deadlines because it wasn't willing to actually make those hard decisions. So the debt ceiling definitely tells a story about Congress that isn't a terribly flattering one, because it tells a story of a Congress that is very innovative in terms of getting itself out of taking tough votes, but extremely reticent to actually do anything and take those tough votes in a way that ends up creating political crises.
1: And I think like to to your point, Dara, that part of what makes it such a potent like political football is that it's one of the few things that's about like the debt and spending too much in the abstract without like getting into any specifics. That when you're voting for or against like increasing the debt limit, you're we know that you're not actually voting about how much debt the government will have because that's decided in spending and and tax legislation but it's it's a way to make a comment on that and when you try to tackle that with specificity you run into to all kinds of of third rails that that can destroy your political career like a year after uh the the 2011 debt ceiling fight paul ryan was the Republican nominee for vice president, and they explicitly ran on his budgets. And one thing they learned is that if you want to like reduce federal spending over the long haul, and you are serious about doing that, and I think Ryan was, you have to talk about things like privatizing much of Medicare, dramatic cuts to basically every social safety net program, controlling the rate of defense spending increases, uh, which enrages other Republicans, and... The some consequence of that is that uh, Democrats ran a campaign where they just like beat the shit out of Romney and Ryan with ads about how they wanted to destroy Medicare, and then they won. And, and
2: you know, perhaps not coincidentally, the next Republican nominee for president explicitly told seniors that he would protect their medicare and social security.
1: Exactly. And like yeah, the Republican response correctly was to retreat and like <laughs> not say anything about touching your retirement benefits ever again. Um but I think the debt ceiling is attractive precisely because it's not that. You you don't have to get into those kinds of details. You don't have to go around telling people like actually instead of medicare we're going to give you like a check for $5,000 and you have to find your own health insurance.
3: Uh like it's a lot more attractive to just like Cast a vote against the debt in abstract, but but that's actually what makes this current fight, at least to me, so confusing and bizarre. Is that supposedly Republicans are taking this stand because they don't want to see Democrats run up the debt again? But I mean, we were all awake a few years ago when they passed massive tax cuts for the wealthy that ran up the deficit. I mean, it, it's always been a bit. I don't know. I, I mean, harping about hypocrisy with politicians can be a little, you know, like a, it's just a cliche. I mean, it's it's always been the case that when Republicans get in power, they love cutting taxes for the wealthy and don't actually care that much for the deficit. I mean, I mean, at the during my explanation about the history here, like this really took off. Like the deficit really took off during peacetime because of Reagan's tax cuts. Like that was a big deal. Um, and obviously, Bush's tax cuts subsequently did that. And now Trump's tax cuts have also further run up the. Bush won, in fairness, did raise taxes and maybe lost re election because of it. That. Yes, that, that's, that's true. But, but it is just to say that in this case, when Republicans are saying, we're, we're outraged at this, we don't want to run up more debt, Democrats have not passed their infrastructure and reconciliation bills yet the current debt ceiling we're dealing with is debt that was almost entirely boosted by republicans in the in recent years which is just to say like what exactly is being opposed here that the federal government is continuing the obligations that the previous administration put us on And I I know that some of this is political. Mitch McConnell loves owning the libs, wants to make Democrats take a a vote that he thinks will be very unpopular. But it is so bizarre here because I I don't think Republicans really have been really clear in what their demands are in this, this particular debt ceiling fight, especially when compared to the fights during the Obama administration when they did have very clear policy demands. They had specific budgets that they wanted to... Uh, get done. They wanted. They had specific cuts in mind that they wanted the Obama administration to help administer, and that that's just not happening this time around. It's really just a vague sense of debt is bad.
2: I have a potential reframing that isn't what anyone is actually saying, but that might help explain the kind of emergent positions that the parties have taken, and that's that this is on a certain level about COVID politics because you could make the argument that just like wartime spending, where it's clear that there is a national purpose that requires like massive unforeseen government outlays, but it's a temporary situation that the COVID pandemic required, you know, yes, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act definitely did a lot to increase the deficit, but the there was also tremendous amounts of federal spending just thrown out at America in 2020 when Congress realized that it was in a crisis footing due to the pandemic. And so you could make the argument that like this is different from the 2010 2011, you know, debt ceiling fights because it isn't about like peacetime per se, it's about a crisis situation. And if you frame it that way, the Republican opposition starts to make a little more sense because unlike spring 2020, Republicans in Congress certainly have increasingly come to the conclusion that If there was a crisis situation due to COVID, that crisis has passed and that anyone continuing to demand exceptional policy responses is just using it as an excuse to impose those exceptional policy responses indefinitely. And usually we see those fights on shutdowns, you know, not shutdowns in the government shutdown sense, but like lockdowns and restrictions on gathering and that kind of thing. But I think it might also apply to spending as well that elected Republicans are simply no longer persuaded that are facing something that requires an extraordinary expenditure of government funds and therefore think we are in more of a, you know, 2010, 2011 situation where we need to start thinking smaller, even if they don't necessarily have specific ideas about how much smaller that needs to get.
3: Just just to push back on that a little, I, I would buy that if we were imagining a Trump administration that came in, was really fiscally responsible, and then during the coronavirus pandemic, they said, okay... We're going to do these emergency measures. But after that, it's back to our responsible budgets. We're going to run surpluses and all that. That clearly didn't happen. And, and to me, that's that's what really throws off this entire story and makes it really hard for me to see what Mitch McConnell actually wants, like what he actually believes is a problem here. So, yeah, to, to look at what Mitch
1: McConnell has actually said about this, because I take Dara's sort of devil's advocate point and in raw numbers, the American Rescue Plan and the CARES Act and the the sort of mini CARES Act at the end of 2020 probably add up to more than Trump tax cuts in terms of like actual deficit increase. And so if we're trying to assign blame, I don't know who that goes to. No one's to blame for a pandemic. But McConnell, in his actual comments, doesn't seem to be asking for anything like <laughs> John Boehner would explicitly talk in in 2011 and 2013 about how he wanted sort of real, meaningful, long-term budget cuts. The whole 2013 debt ceiling and government shutdown fight was about Ted Cruz and a bunch of conservatives in the House wanting to repeal Obamacare. And like, that's an absurd thing to ask Obama to do. (laughs) But it's like an ask. It's something you can talk about. McConnell, the one thing he has said consistently about this uh, in his tweets and comments to reporters is I want to make Democrats do this. I'm not asking for anything. I'm I don't expect to get anything. I just don't want any Republican votes going to this. I want Democrats to own the fact that they voted for an, a greater debt ceiling. There's some own the libs mentality to that, but I also like don't know how smart a political calculation it is. Like I, I think all else being equal, voters probably don't like the idea of debt, but no polling i've seen suggests that it's a top priority for a lot of people the debt ceiling as distinct from debt seems rather byzantine as as something that would affect midterm elections maybe i'm underselling this but and maybe there are some sort of hard districts where democrats have to defend house seats and uh it would look really bad for that house member to be on the record defending having sort of 20 trillion dollars in total debt or, or or whatever it is but I don't know that this is, like, the big brain Mitch McConnell we're all used to.
2: I mean, I definitely agree that, like, it's not a good look to say that the demand you have is that Democrats take a vote that will make them look bad. I just want to make clear that I'm not making an argument about, like, objective responsibility, like, the share of objective responsibility. It seems that the exceptional COVID spending period of 2020 just served as an easy way to allow the debate over government spending to move past the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act so that, you know, you could also theoretically see an argument where, like, Mitch McConnell is saying, look, when we were in power, we made sure that the federal government couldn't continue to grow at its unsustainable pace, and now we just need it to live within its means that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act prescribed. And he's not saying that either. Like, I think it's definitely true that the the kind of obvious, somewhat, clumsy nihilism that McConnell is bringing to the table here definitely makes it seem like any bigger argument about what's going on is, you know, steel manning him. But I think it also does tie into kind of at the broader party sense, the current way that Republicans have justified their returned like party of small government cred, which is both about just kind of ignoring some of the inconvenient facts of the Trump administration and thinking about the uh, their desire to return to a politics of normal around COVID, as opposed to continuing to justify extraordinary measures.
3: Yeah, I guess if if you frame this as strictly political, I think it does start to make much more sense. And I, I agree with Dylan that I don't know the like whether this is smart politically. I just don't know how much voters actually follow and care about these process fights in general. My I'm deeply skeptical that they really do. I mean, if if at the end of the year Democrats raise a debt ceiling. How much are people in general even really paying attention to that? I'm, I'm honestly not sure, but my hunch is not much.
2: Yeah, no, this is exactly the same point in the two-year Congress cycle that the 2013 government shutdown happened. And at the time, there was a lot of punditry about this is going to doom Republicans in 2014. And it very much didn't because... Voters don't tend to care that much about stuff that happens in off years generally.
3: I guess if I was trying to understand here, though, I mean, going into the midterms, the Republican strategies, especially the reconciliation bill that gets done and that's a lot of spending, it it adds another point for Republicans to say, look how much these tax and spend governments are running up the deficit and debt and all of that. Maybe that's part of the calculation, but I don't know. At this point, it's trying to read Mitch McConnell's head and uh, I don't want to go there. Let's get out of Mitch McConnell's head and take a break for a moment.
1: And uh, when we come back, I, I have a rant about the debt ceiling and democracy.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood, you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies.
1: Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews here with Darland and Herman Lopez. So we talked a bit about sort of the economic catastrophe if we hit the debt ceiling, some of the sort of political factors behind it. And I have a, another concern that I feel like it's like maybe me catastrophizing, but I wanted to spin it out and see how it feels for all of you. So we mentioned earlier that like Denmark is the only other country that has a debt ceiling. And part of why it's, not a problem in Denmark is that Denmark is like a responsible country full of Danes. Uh, but another, <laughs> another like deeper reason for that is that it has an incredibly simple government structure. Uh, they have a parliamentary government with one house; it's unicameral, and the Folketing, the Danish Parliament, is elected through proportional representation. And so, no one, so far as I can tell, has ever had a majority of seats. No one party. Everything happens coalitionally uh, through sort of bartering between many small parties. And so once you have like a functioning government in office, obviously they're going to raise the debt ceiling. They're the only actor that would have any role in that. They're already in power. And the way that parliamentary governments work is that if you deny even budgeting, let alone a debt ceiling, the government falls and there are new elections. And so they have all these built-in fail-safes and sort of built-in incentives for everyone to increase this responsibly. The U.S. government is a presidential system that has a built-in sort of adversarial relationship between Congress and the president. That's part of why this debt ceiling came out of the president repeatedly requesting Congress authorize specific debt issuances, because he could not do that on his own, and his interests were distinct from those of Congress. Um, I'm saying him not to make a statement about generic pronouns, but just because, like, you know, American
2: Historically, history. it has been... Yeah.
1: So it's it's sort of this built-in adversarial relationship. And normally like you can have fights between the branches and things like they can be tough, but not apocalyptic. Even something like a government shutdown is like total your car bad, not fall off a cliff bad. It's like stressful, but uh but you can undo a lot of the damage. The death is really the only thing in American government where like if we don't do it, like genuine catastrophe could ensue. And I am very worried about the stability of presidential systems in general because of the potential for legislature and presidency conflict. And the fact that we have this point in our system that guarantees incredibly high-stakes conflict makes me extra nervous because often when there is high-stakes conflict, that's where you get things like coups. So like two examples I used in a piece the other day were Alberto Fujimori, the president of Peru had a fight with Congress in 1992 and so dissolved Congress and made himself a dictator. In 2009, the Supreme Court and Congress of Honduras were unhappy with the left-wing president, so they just, like, deposed him. And because it's the Supreme Court, they were able to say, hey, it's legal. And I, I am not predicting anything that dramatic in America, but I, like, am worried about the debt ceiling both as, like, a dumb thing we have, but also as a potential catalyst for more
3: January 6s. Maybe we're not going to see a coup, but maybe we're going to see more Poland or Hungary style shifts to like more autocratic powers in the presidency. I mean, I'm I was thinking to this from uh, personal experience because I come from Venezuela. And one thing that was really clear with Chavez and Maduro, as they have essentially seized more and more power, is every time they had a conflict with the legislature, and anytime it was Does the executive or the legislative branch get a say here? The executive would just seize a little more power. They would just win that battle because it turns out they have the military behind them. That's a pretty strong incentive to listen to the president. And over time, those chips away at power build up. And it leads to a situation where you now have a president who's essentially very, very, like, much more powerful than I think the founders or just the public in general would want. And that can lead to huge problems if you, say, strongly disagree with uh, whatever he's doing with any policy, any policy issue. And it, it creates this instability because as it becomes more autocratic and the public becomes less supportive of that presidency for whatever reason, there's obviously going to be more distrust. There's going to be more conflict between the public and their leader. And I think eventually that is how you get into some of these situations where people are essentially rebelling or revolting into, against their, their government. Like, Dylan, I'm not saying this is going to happen in the U.S. This is just one debt ceiling fight. But these are the kinds of systems that help foster that kind of environment. Whenever you have these deliberate conflicts getting set up, I mean, there's a reason that basically every other developed country in the world does not follow a presidential system and follows a parliamentary system. This is one of them. When the U.S. helped Japan set up a government, this is a famous example. They did not say, hey, do our constitutional presidential government. They set up a parliamentary system. And there's a good reason for that. It is Those, those systems are just more stable. It turns out that avoiding conflict between the legislature and an executive branch is good.
2: So I want to bring this to what we should do about the debt ceiling? Because it seems to me that there is kind of an interesting tension here. Because on the one hand, I absolutely agree that like the basic political model that if the public sees non-executive government institutions as mostly getting in the way of a vigorous and flexible executive that can respond to their concerns, they're going to support the executive usurping the power of those institutions so that it can respond more vigorously and flexibly. But it seems like there's something of an argument that because this particular fight is like particularly likely to lead to those sort of outcomes, that the check on the executive that exists should be removed. And that seems a little bit backwards to me that you that like, or rather, it seems to belong to a genre of argument that is we should give kind of our opponents preemptively what they want. In this case, like we should Expand the power of the executive so that it doesn't get expanded for us, right. which is kind of a negotiating with ourselves. And so I I would love to hear what folks think the right answer on the debt ceiling in particular is, and whether it does kind of run into the problem of, well, if we don't want a dictatorial system, we'd better give Joe Biden more power now.
1: Yes. There's there's something of a of a like we have to burn the norm in order to save it. Yes. Yes, that's
2: it. what I that's what I was looking for. Thank you.
1: So A few things on that. One is sort of you can imagine kind of multi-tiered crises where the implied increase in power, either for the president or for Congress, since I think it's important to remember situations where like Congress is the anti-democratic aggressor, not the president, where the, the issues at stake are not merely the debt ceiling, but the debt ceiling and a bunch of other stuff. And so the power grabs that happen are not limited to the debt ceiling. So in 2013, you had roughly simultaneous debt ceiling and government shutdown fights. That's not that uncommon. Uh, Often debt ceiling increases are packaged to other spending things. They have similar expiration dates. And so you get some of these sort of multifaceted inflection points of crisis. And so there's a difference between the president in in a, a pure debt ceiling situation saying, I'm going to obviate the debt ceiling by doing X, Y, or Z, and the president say deciding he's not going to spend on uh, a particular program because he disagrees uh, with the sort of government spending passed by congress or he's going to divert funding to a different thing like there there are various increases to to presidential spending and and fiscal power that you could imagine being seized in that situation that would not be seized in in sort of a a pure debt ceiling standoff and so part of what biden would be doing by doing sort of a, a debt ceiling power grab is like reducing the odds of a broader power grab in the future. That might not be right. Like, there, there's something of a ratchet to, to presidential power, and in which, say, like the Bush claim of power to uh, detain without charge helps build a view of the executive that enables Obama to offer waivers for everything in No Child Left Behind and create uh, DACA and DAPA and executivize a lot of, of policymaking. And so maybe Biden doing this would just increase the ratchet like that rather than averting some some future crisis where more backsliding can happen. But I do take these sort of averting a worse crisis thing seriously because the trend lines for stability of the U.S. government are not great. And I put a lot of stock in just like not spurring really bad crises,
3: period. The thing I would add there is to the extent it it's worth avoiding this debt ceiling crisis to begin with. And to the extent it might cause problems down the line, I mean, maybe then we need to examine the system we're working under as like a whole government structure, right? I'm not saying that'll happen. There are some hot takes on Vox that that, that American democracy is doomed. I'm not totally <laughs> sure if, if if we'll get there. But I, I think one thing that's that's remarkable here is I mean, we we're talking earlier about how the debt zone has existed since the countries started running out debts. And it is just amazing to me how often we see these old systems that used to work fine suddenly pop up again as huge problems. How often that occurs in, with the, the U.S., especially recently. I mean, another example of this is the filibuster, right? For much of American history, the filibuster was not considered a massive hurdle to getting legislation done necessarily. It's only in recent times when it's been restructured, when polarization has crept in that it's become a massive basically the the key hurdle to passing absolutely any bills in Congress. I don't know at, at some point if these kinds of problems just keep popping up again and again like hey, this system worked fine a few decades ago. what's going wrong now? Maybe the problem isn't these specific parts of the system, but the system itself.
2: The only constant in all your institutions is you. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to put it, Dara. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the obvious solution to avoiding debt ceiling crises is to get rid of the debt ceiling. But at the end of the day, if, if we're we're leading to a, more, a situation where, again, we're essentially empowering the executive branch and we don't like that, then maybe we just need to reconsider how the whole system is structured to begin with. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be clear, I... I would vastly prefer a congressional
1: solution to the debt ceiling problem to an executive one, even with Democrats only having 50 votes and even with the filibuster still intact. And I think the filibuster is stupid. I think a lot of people uh, on, on this podcast think the filibuster is stupid. But even with the current rules, Democrats could effectively eliminate the debt ceiling using budget reconciliation. They could increase it to an arbitrarily large number. They could just say that the debt limit is whatever the current amount of debt outstanding is. They could do that with 50 votes. The reason we're starting to talk about what Biden could do unilaterally through things like uh, minting a platinum coin, um, which we'll link to an explainer on that uh, since it's it's a lot of like economics blog lore that I find very funny but is possibly off-putting for people who are not in on the joke. But the, the, the simplest solution would be for, for Congress to do it. And the only reason they wouldn't in the current circumstance is just like timing. John Yarmuth, who's the budget chair in the House, has said that he doesn't think they have the time before October 18th when, when we're set to hit the debt limit to amend the budget resolution to authorize a, a standalone bill getting rid of the debt ceiling and then pass that bill uh, before we hit the deadline but doing that would have tons of advantages over Biden doing it unilaterally. Most notably, it would be like legally beyond question, whereas things like using a trillion dollar coin to fund the federal government or having Biden say that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional or having him say that it's illegal um, in some sense, which is subtly different. All those create a lot of legal risk. Whether or not like lawsuits against him would succeed, the uncertainty around that would sort of royal markets globally, it would increase borrowing costs, it would have some of the negative ramifications that we assign to breaching the debt ceiling in the first place.
2: And it would also constitute almost certainly an overruling by the White House of the people at the Department of Justice, like the Office of Legal Counsel, for example, whose job is literally to write memos saying the litigation risk of this is substantial and therefore you really should consider not doing it, which would itself have a be a problem for like the continued expansion of, you know, White House power over the executive branch.
1: Exactly. And we know for a fact that the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the, the group you're alluding to at, at the Justice mm-hmm. Department that provides that kind of guidance to the president, issued a ruling on sort of ways around the debt ceiling in 20, 2011 or 2013. I think it was Ryan Riley at, at Talking Points Memo did a, a FOIA request for for anything that the OLC did. And they got back and said, we have a lot of opinions about this, but they're protected by attorney-client privilege. And it's it's... It's a big kind of privilege when your client's the president. So we know they've thought about that. And we know that that Obama was insistent that he wouldn't do any of these things. And like, it's not an unreasonable inference from that, that a lot of the career attorneys at the Justice Department <laughs> told him or like begged him not to do this.
2: Is there some kind of third path that doesn't go through Democrats acceding to an unreasonable timeline to try to take a congressional solution or to, you know, Joe Biden unilaterally like making decisions about the legality or illegality of things that have been in place for a long time? Like, is there any kind of creative? I mean, yes, obviously, like minting a platinum coin is, you know, it's certainly a creative workaround insofar as it would require like the minimal amount of change. But are there other ways the federal government can think its way out of this?
1: I mean, I think the least sketchy seeming idea that I've seen on this is uh, a law professor at Duke has a plan where the government would fund itself with like quasi debt and while this I acknowledge that this sounds super sketchy because um, the, the government like sketchy. making up a new kind of federal debt, issuing it, funding itself with it and then saying but it's a special kind of debt so it's not subject <laughs> to the debt ceiling that, like definitely seems like you're trying to get one over on someone and you are. but a point that he makes in his paper on this is that this is how a lot of state governments work. Technically most states, I think Vermont's the exception, have some kind of balanced budget requirement. They're not allowed to take on debt. You will notice that many states nonetheless take on debt. And they do it through this kind of process of not issuing general bonds, but creating special lending facilities to get around these debt limits in their state constitutions, usually. And so his argument is, like, courts have upheld that for years and years and years. Why can't the federal government get in on it? What I strongly suspect is that it's not possible to set up something like that in the next uh, 18 days or so. TARP, which was in some ways a simpler thing to set up, the sort of bailout program for banks and, and mortgage securities, took a while to get going and took a good deal of planning. And the government had months from Bear Stearns's collapse in March 2008 to sort of get ready for that. We really don't have a lot of time. And I don't know if, if you got the most creative financiers and, and securities experts in the world together
3: that you could swing that on the timeframe we're looking at. Well, just just to your point, whenever you're looking for the least sketchy solution for something, <laughs> you're probably in a very bad place to begin with. Just goes to show this is a very screwed up situation. It's avoidable one, but it's probably going to require a little more work than I guess Congress has been used to lately.
1: <sighs> Let's take a break and then we're going to talk about Canadian price fixing.
2: Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
1: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun.
2: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS.
4: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. I'm here with Darlene and Herman López. We are going to talk about something you've all been asking us about, and that is bread price fixing in Canada. Not now, but in the past. This is a historical Canadian bread price fixing paper. Dara, tell us about it.
2: All right, so it is not actually called, you know, Explosive Canadian bread cartel expose. Although, <laughs> really, if you know, given that this is a working paper, that is the revision that I would submit to them. It's called Hub and Spoke Cartels Theory and Evidence from the Grocery Industry from Robert Clark, Ignatius Horseman, and Jean Francois Oud. And what they're doing here is there is kind of publicly known evidence that from the early 2000s to the late 20 teens, that there was at least some collusion and price fixing in Canadian bread prices and there was an investigation announced there's been litigation against the you know the suppliers of bread in Canada which are like two major conglomerates in particular What this paper is trying to do is demonstrate that something that has been alleged but hasn't really been aired out in court also happened, which is that at the same time suppliers were colluding to fix prices, the retailers, the grocery stores were also, you know, working with each other and with the wholesalers they were dealing with to keep prices high. The paper's authors do that through both a theoretical model, which is a lot of honestly, Greek letter magic that is beyond my ken, um, and with some empirical work that demonstrates that the way you would expect a market to behave if re- retailers were colluding matches the way that the market actually behaved, especially after the cartel collapsed when the investigation was opened, better than the way you would expect a market to behave if there wasn't a cartel there. And they get into some explanations of like why you might see this sort of cartelization happen that involves... The structure of the grocery industry where instead of you know retailers being responsible for like putting shelf displays together at, or not, not like the fancy shelf displays, but like figuring out which products go on which shelves and getting rid of merchandise that is passed its sell by date and that kind of thing, they have outsourced those jobs. To suppliers, so that there's a certain dependence on suppliers to kind of do some of this important work and a desire to rely on a single supplier to do all of the important work, which creates certain relationships in the market essentially that make it easier and more beneficial for all parties involved to be colluding both at the supplier end and at the retailer end, with the result that, like, over the period during which the Canadian bread cartel was in operation, bread prices increased by like 40% over the increases to other consumer goods.
3: For me, there were two big takeaways from this paper. One is I am just very delighted to read the words Canada's alleged bread cartel at all in my life. So I'm very thankful <laughs> for that opportunity. But two is just I was really struck not even just by by this particular bread cartel, but by how common these kinds of problems seem to be maybe i'm a bit naive but i would like to think that these these kinds of things aren't happening that often but i I mean you go through the the paper this was going on like it involved obviously a lot of major players in canada involved in bread markets it went on for a decade and a half Which is wild to me that nobody noticed this happening. I would like to think there are regulators, you know, watching out for this and catch it before a decade and a
2: half. Right. And, like, not for nothing, there was an anonymous complaint filed by one of the retailers you know because canada has a structure where if you're the first person to to flag a violation that isn't being investigated you might get immunity so like one of the retailers flagged this and then two years later is when the investigation (laughs) was formally opened like it took them two years to figure out that there might be a problem with the sudden rise in the cost of bread
3: yeah but the and and the thing is that the paper goes on to mention that these kinds of things are happening in other markets all the time i mean it mentions apple it mentions toys r us it mentions the uk dairy market one point it mentions a u.s bread market so to me it's just striking how common this problem is and it's just to drive on the point this is worth paying attention to obviously in some sense it's funny that it's a canadian bread cartel but on the other hand it's, it's representative of a much bigger issue here. I want to emphasize that it's
1: really funny that it's a Canadian bread cartel on a couple of dimensions. <laughs> uh, one is that the, the major bread company at the center of this is called Loblaw, because the entire nation of Canada is an Arrested Development <laughs> Uh Loblaw is possibly most famous uh, for having been a client of McKinsey, and specifically a client of McKinsey uh, consultant Pete Buttigieg which resulted in a, a classic confrontation between him and the New York Times' uh, Binya Applebaum.
2: Can you reenact it for us?
1: <laughs> you were at the center of corporate price-fixing. You worked for a company that fixed bread prices in Canada. You've been on the front lines of corporate
3: downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price-fixing. You've been on the
1: front
3: lines that's, that's, of, of, of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had- so
1: the proposition
3: that I've been on the front lines of corporate price-fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no, I worked for a consulting company
2: that had a client that may have been involved in fixing or was apparently in a scandal.
1: What I I find most interesting in this paper is, is the theory. So one point they make is that it's like weird for wholesalers and retailers to be colluding together like this because in some sense they're, they are competing for the same share of of profit that so sort of when wholesalers increase their prices, that can bite into the profit margin of retailers. Retailers thus have an incentive to try to push down wholesale prices. Um, and so there's some degree of like antagonism there. And part of what seemed to reduce the odds of a cartel like this getting going, is that for it to work, wholesalers have to be in collusion with each other. They have to be agreeing to this deal uh, such that none of them are like undercutting each other and, and offering lower rates to, to retailers. And normally, retailers don't want wholesalers colluding like that because it means their costs go up. And what makes it all work is the willingness of retailers to let wholesalers collude, the willingness of wholesalers to let retailers collude, and the like, willingness to agree upon a set series of incentives for each to keep the whole arrangement going. So the, the way they got around this dynamic is that they agreed on a pretty stable seven cent price increase for, uh, for wholesalers, 10 cent price increase at the retail level paid by consumers. And that was able to be like a stable equilibrium where uh, no one on the wholesaler or, or retailer side had an incentive to defect and try to break the cartel. Normally, when cartels like this last for a really long time, uh, one famous example is is Canada's maple syrup cartel, which there's a great Netflix documentary in their series Dirty Money about. Um, The the maple syrup cartel is like a quasi-governmental institution in Quebec. Quebec has 90% of the world's maple syrup reserves, which is uh, not something they taught us in school in New Hampshire. I was taught that New Hampshire has all the maple syrup. But Quebec has all the maple syrup, And they officially, like, limit how much can be released onto the markets to keep maple syrup prices high. And this is done with government knowledge and agreement. And it only became a subject of controversy when there was a massive maple syrup heist stealing millions of dollars of maple syrup to sell on the black market in New Brunswick, which is a a lawless Atlantic uh, marine province. (laughs) So, like, when the government is propping up a cartel like this, it can get going indefinitely. The contribution of this paper is is like showing how something could be dominant and stable without that kind of explicit government propping and indeed, like while trying to evade government regulators.
3: If there are innate incentives for people to be doing this to begin with, then you're going to need some government body stridently watching for these issues and actually cracking down. Again, I go back to the fact since this was going for a decade and a half, maybe there's not enough. Uh, oversight, maybe there's not enough regulation, or maybe these are just really, really difficult problems to solve. But to me, it it just gets to that point that this is so common in parts of the economy because there are powerful incentives to do it. And that that creates a, a big problem for policymakers.
2: To just get into the weeds a teeny tiny bit to explain what we mean by stability, because it is actually a pretty like at least one of the ways in which this like becomes more stable equilibrium is pretty easy to grok. Like one of the biggest threats to cartels generally is that. If you want to defect from the cartel, like you're a wholesaler who wants to defect from the cartel, you can offer retailers such a lower price that like, you will get a huge boost in sales, and so you will end up making more money even though the prices are lower. The kind of hub-and-spoke model allows that to not be an attractive option because retailers are themselves relying on the increase in prices, and so aren't particularly looking to reward defection on the wholesaler side. So it is, the more sophisticated and the less isolated in a single direction this stuff gets, the harder it is to prove that it exists, which is like why the paper exists to begin with, because the court case has had a much easier time of demonstrating wholesaler cartelization than retailer cartelization. And the more important it becomes to track it down because it's not going to go away on its own.
1: I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Thanks to ProPublica's Dara Lind and Vox's Ramon Lopez for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts at Vox. Liz Nelson is the VP for audio. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. And I'll see you right back here on Friday with Jerusalem Demsis for a conversation with Catherine Page Hardin on her book, The Genetic Lottery.